We're looking at the dangers of covetousness part two, or actually today we're going to be talking virtually the whole time about contentment. We looked at the negative, we're going to look at the positive. I have a couple things to finish up and then we're going to look at contentment for the whole the whole time. Our text is uh, Hebrews 13, <coughs> 5, and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now we got to continue last week. Uh, just a few things to wrap up. You know, I went a little bit long last week, but I got a couple things to, fin uh, to wrap up. This consecration of our work, material wealth and possessions to God and Christian dominion is totally foreign to our pagan culture where it's get what you can, you know, get, 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 get more, accumulate, accumulate. We must seek a spiritual harvest in the present and the future. Therefore, we are to be extra careful to honor the Lord with the fruit of our labor and not simply uh, reward ourselves. Even in the midst of abundance and material prosperity, we must deny ourselves and remember that our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20. You can't take it with you. Um, you know, you might be super rich and you might have all these mansions. Think of William Randolph Hearst. He had Hearst Castle and he had other amazing mansions in other parts of the world. And uh, I think of Jay Leno with his uh, mind-boggling car collection. It's got to be worth over $30 million. You can't take it with you. Jesus says to us, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will he give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 24-26. And then 1 Samuel 2.20, Those who honor me, I will honor. Now some of the danger signs of covetousness are as follows. Number one, If one's thoughts are totally obsessed with the things of this world and spiritual matters are ignored, then covetousness is a serious problem. You're constantly focused on this world. Such a person is so absorbed in his business and worldly pursuits that he has no time for God, Christ, or Scripture. And one of the purposes, of course, of the Lord's Day, or the Christian Sabbath, is to focus our attention on God and Jesus and why we are here. We, we are to tithe a portion of our income, and we're to tithe a portion of our time, in a sense, of spending a day with God and meditating on what he has done for us to kind of keep us heavenly-minded. We step out of the rat race and rest from all worldly employments and recreations in order to focus our attention on worshiping Yahweh and meditating on our precious Savior and His perfect salvation. <clears throat> the Sabbath properly interpreted and observed re reorients us away from materialism and worldly pursuits. And a society's spiritual state can be well measured by how the Christian Sabbath is treated. In America today, it is just another business day, or it is a day dedicated solely to sports and the pursuit of pleasures. 
This is proof that our culture is largely apostate and is dedicated to money and personal pleasures, not God. The last part of our country that stopped uh, Sabbath laws, these used to be called blue laws, I guess, was in Michigan, Western Michigan, where you have a lot of Dutch. They were the last communities to get rid of the Sabbath laws. And the Sabbath laws were not intrusive. It was simply, we're not gonna, you're not going to have businesses open unless it's a business related to something that's necessary, an emergency, you know, doctors, nurses, police, perhaps one or two gas stations, but that's it. <clears throat> and if you have uh, Matthew Henry's works, his sermon on the Sabbath is wonderful. We are reminded about our Lord's parable where the cares of this world, this is Mark 4.19, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. It becomes unfruitful. An obsession with the present world, seeking happiness, meaning, and fulfillment, and wealth and possessions, and a desire for sinful pleasures chokes out the effects of the gospel in one's life. Therefore, Jesus is not placed first, but last. God is not in all their thoughts, for their love and devotion is in the wrong place. And for this reason, the Apostle John warns us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.15-17 A symptom of this disease is our buy now, pay later, pay later culture. I've got to have it. I've got to go into debt and get it now. One must have the latest thing whether one can really afford it or not. The American consumer culture is based on advertisements that are usually designed to stimulate inner desires to the point where debt and buying things one cannot afford is placed above responsible biblical stewardship. And I've been around a long time, and I've known Christians who got themselves into all sorts of trouble with this lust after getting this and getting that, and I've got to have this car, and I've got to have this stereo, and I've got to have this TV and all that. And they spend the money they don't have, and they get into all sorts of debt and all sorts of problems. I knew a family where, this is many years ago, nobody will know who this is, but many years ago, the woman had credit card debt of over $150,000 for trinkets, for junk. Not a good thing. People base their lives on grasping for more and more things. Cars, clothes, gadgets, tech stuff, the like, without realizing why we have been placed here by God. <coughs> and Christ warned us about such thinking in Luke 12, 15-21. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will build, pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, 
This night your soul will be required of you. Then those, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Multitudes of people think and live like this rich man. People don't think about death. They think they're going to live forever. That's the way they act. They act that way. And it's extremely short-sighted and foolish. They focus all their attention on storing store more and more stuff and having as much fun as possible without any concern for God or Jesus or godly dominion. <clears throat> they live as if, as if they will never die and face God or the judgment seat of Christ. And our Lord calls people, such people, fools. Even though our society looks up to them and considers them clever and great. We are here to glorify God through faith and obedience to Christ, not glorify ourselves. And you see this, you know. Now, there, there, there are people that are very rich who have modest houses and modest cars and so forth. Uh, I forget that guy's name, that guy in Nebraska. He's a, he's a billionaire. He, he's lives, he lives in the same house he bought in like 1958. <laughs> he drives regular old, like an old Ford. If the Lord has blessed us and made us rich, let us be extra diligent in making sure we are rich in faith, love, and good works toward God. Nothing wrong with being rich. Nothing wrong with using your mind and making money. Just make sure you're not neglecting spiritual matters. Remember Jesus' words to the Laodiceans. You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Revelation 3.17. And it's, it's certainly not an exaggeration to say that covetousness is probably the most common sin in the whole world. And really, as we've noted last week, it's the foundation of all the other sins. Covetousness. That's how idolatry begins. The Bible calls it idolatry. That's how adultery begins. That's how fornication begins. That's how theft occurs. That's how fraud occurs. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Is a root of all sorts of evil. It's not the only root. Number two. Another sign of covetousness is when gaining the things of this world, riches, fame, possessions, is more important to us than following Christ and seeking eternal life. <clears throat> a desire to be rich is often connected with self-trust and self-exaltation, which can be a substitute for trusting and glorifying God. Seeking great riches, power, and possessions is usually connected to sinful pride, self-sufficiency, and human autonomy. Now, we noted last week there are rich people in the Bible that were very godly. Abraham was rich. Isaac was wealthy. David was obviously wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea. Consequently, Moses warned Israel against a prideful misrepresentation, misinterpretation of wealth and prosperity in Deuteronomy 8, 11 and 19. Listen to this carefully. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, 
And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, he didn't say that those things are wrong. He's warning them how to the proper attitude to have if that happens to you, if God blesses you. Who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which fiery serpents and scorpions and a thirsty land where there was no water. Who brought you, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do your good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if any, by any means you forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day, that you shall surely perish. <clears throat> so when Israel's in the occupation of the land and they've accumulated beautiful houses, all kinds of fruit trees, great vines, crops, herds, large crops, beautiful possessions, they must remember that the Lord God is the author of their prosperity and give him the glory. Give him the thankfulness. God grants these earthly blessings to show his love and faithfulness to his people. And the blessings and curses, both in, in Deuteronomy, God promises that if you obey the law and you follow biblical principles, he's going to bless you. But we're not to misinterpret that. God grants these blessings to show his love and faithfulness to his people. The people do not autonomously acquire them and do not actually deserve them. We deserve nothing. When people forget about God's grace and kindness and the provisions of life and attribute the blessings to themselves, they fall into an arrogant, practical atheism. Rich people are often extremely arrogant and obnoxious. People who are rich often think they have no need for God or Christ and say such things as religion is a crutch for the poor to help them endure the sufferings of this life. That's a very common view. Religion was invented so poor people would have hope in the future because life is miserable now. I've heard that when witnessing to rich people. I've actually heard that, a version of that. This confidence in riches is one of the main reasons why our Lord said that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19.24 Many rich men are proud and arrogant because they attribute their riches to their own self-sufficiency and brilliance. For this reason, Moses reminds us that God is responsible for our blessings in this life. Yahweh gives us the power and ability to get wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 if we prosper economically, we must thank God for it and give him the glory. We must heed the words of King David, Psalm 62.10. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Don't be obsessed with wealth. Don't be obsessed with having fancy things. Here's Spurgeon. <clears throat> Quote, 
If they grow in an honest providential manner as a result of industry or commercial success, do not make much account of the circumstance. Do not be unduly elated. Do not fix your love upon the money bags. To bow an immortal spirit to the constant contemplation of fading possessions is extreme folly. Shall those who call the Lord their glory, glory in yellow earth? Shall the image and subscription of Caesar deprive them of communion with him, who is the image of the invisible God? Superscription of Caesar, that he, his picture was on their coins. As we must not rest in men, so neither must we repose in money. Gain and fame are only so much foam of the sea. All the wealth and honor the whole world can afford would be too slender a thread to bear up the happiness of an immortal soul. And I, I say, you know, who was the most important actor of 1883? Nobody knows. Who was the greatest singer of 1910? Who knows? Maybe a historian. But those, the glory of the earth fades very quickly. What you do for Christ lasts forever. Paul says that covetousness is idolatry in Colossians 3.5. Because whatever a man worships, serves, and trusts in for support is his God. Number three. There are other things to look for for help to help us identify covetousness in our life. A. If we are constantly complaining about our lot in life, a complaining spirit, then we are not content with the situation in which God's providence has placed us. There will always be people who are better off than we are. And that lady I spoke about who had $150,000 in debt constantly complained about her husband that he didn't make enough money. Now, he made plenty of money. He made money more money than I ever made. She constantly complained about his job and he wasn't making enough money. <laughs> That's terrible. That, that shows covetousness. To fret about it and complain is not only foolish, for it changes nothing, but it does not express thankfulness to God for the things we do have. If someone is more blessed financially or blessed with gifts than we are, we should not complain but be happy for them. You'd be happy for them. Don't be envious. Don't hold a grudge. Be happy. B. A clear sign of covetousness is envy. Envy arises from discontent that looks at the advantages, wealth, position, superior gifts of another, etc., and then hates, dislikes, opposes, and holds a grudge against that person. That's one of the reasons the Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus. Because he was the greatest preacher that ever lived. He was the greatest theologian that ever lived. And of course, he had the, the ability to heal people. And the people liked him for it, and they hated him. They want, therefore, to knock that person down, either financially or with respect to the reputation. Envy is the foundation of resentment and class warfare in our culture. It is the chief appeal to the poor by the Democratic Party. Envy. They have more because they've exploited you, because they're racist, because they're white, white privilege, all this garbage. It's all complete nonsense. 
and it's been demonstrated to be nonsense by facts by Thomas Sowell and, and others. It is thoroughly satanic and evil. Politicians, Marxists, and racists have a ferocious spirit that delights in slandering and pulling others down. Envy, stimulated by laws and political propaganda, turns people into ethical savages. And of course, it doesn't bring more riches to the poor, it doesn't bring more riches to society, it doesn't bring more prosperity to society, because it's based on covetousness, and it's based on state theft. And so what does it do? It makes countries much more poor. Look at Venezuela, look at South America, look at Central America, where these left-wing politicians have come into power. Prosperity goes in the dumpster, and then they have to pass oppressive political laws that are extremely oppressive because <laughs> that's how they stay in power. Such people are clearly guilty of covetousness, for they not only lust after what they do not have that belongs to another, but are happy and willing to propagate lies and vote for those who will penalize the successful and pull them down. You know, oh, they have to pay their fair share. They have to pay their fair share. In the state of California, the top 5% of earners, 5%, pays 90% of the taxes. And that's pretty much true all over the United States. Guess who has the, the record in the state of California for paying taxes? Elon Musk. Now, he's not there anymore. He moved to Texas. But when he lived in California, he has the record for paying the most in taxes of any human being. And that's all based on Marxism. Everybody should pay the same flat amount. Everybody, you know, if you're going to have a percentage, every, let's say let's say everybody pays 5%, everybody should pay the same amount, whether you're rich or poor. Poor use the roads, poor have the police services, etc. Tax the rich, give money to the poor, is Marxism. It's based on covetousness, it's based on stealing, it's theft. The modern welfare state is based on coercion and theft, not love and not biblical law. And the thing, of course, that's ironic about all this is that when a society <coughs> rejects socialism, rejects welfare statism, rejects the policies of the Democrats and, of course, liberal Republicans, uh, it'll prosper and it'll lift up the poor. If you look at black families after the Civil War and you look at how they were ethically as far as staying married and raising kids properly, and if you look at how they were rising economically, that all went in the dumpster in the 1960s with the Great Society and the welfare programs of Lyndon Baines Johnson. The democratic policies have done more to harm blacks and to harm African-American families than the Ku Klux Klan. This ill-natured vice is exhibited among professing Christians by a delight in finding fault with others and engaging in gossip and slander. It's very common in churches. Slander, gossip, backbiting. Our Christian brothers are far from perfect and need growth in many areas. But our job is not to point out their faults to others and drag them down, but rather to go to them in person and in private and work to edify and help them. Read what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 and following. Jesus forbids gossip. 
He says, if you see your brother sin, if he's involved in a sin, you go to him privately and you work on it. If the guy tells you to pound sand, if he doesn't want to repent, then you get another person. You do it again. Then if he tells you to go to hell, then you go get the elders of the church and then you talk to him. He gets three chances to repent. It only becomes public if he doesn't repent and the elders discipline him. Christian love works for edification, not their destruction. 2 Corinthians 10.8 And then C. Another sign of covetousness is an obsessive fear about the future. One cannot be content and happy in the present when one does not trust God to care for us in the future. It is a form of covetousness that seeks unlawful means to control the future. We see this today in things like astrology, tarot cards, consulting mediums, etc. And this form of covetousness is also the basis of socialist and status utopianism. And that's why in poor third world countries, you know, Central America, South America, and in other parts of the world, socialists get elected. Elect me and I'll penalize the rich. Now, there are people that are rich due to injustice. I don't deny that. But you go after them if they commit fraud or they commit an injustice or they steal something. You go after them for what they've done wrong. You don't penalize people simply for working harder and making more money. <clears throat> One is not content with society and all its defects. So instead of looking to solutions in God's word, men turn to statism. Marxism, socialism, welfare statism. And it doesn't work. It does not work. You pay a man to stay home and watch TV, he's going to stay home and watch TV. And you're not going to get ahead in life sitting around watching TV. D. Covetousness is also intimate and related to greed and selfishness. Greed always seeks to have more and more and is not satisfied. Greediness leads to selfishness because it craves to hang on to much more than it needs. What did Jesus say? Matthew 6, 19, do not lay for yourselves treasures up on earth. We have seen that possessing riches and the finer things in life is not intrinsically sinful. We looked at a bunch of that last week. It's not intrinsically wrong to be rich. But when professing Christians pamper themselves with luxuries, expensive luxurious cars, fine clothes in abundance, lavish vacations, exceptionally large luxurious houses, fancy dinners, and so on, yet barely support the gospel, or place their children in state schools to save money, or refuse to help poor people, poor Christians when they have the opportunity, or barely tithe at all to worthy Christian causes, they are laying up treasures in an unbiblical manner. There are Americans that are very well off who spend money lavishly. And there's nothing wrong with spending money lavishly as long as it's in its proper perspective. But yet when you don't tithe and you send your kids to public schools to save money and you don't support the kingdom of God and you don't do this and you don't do that, it just shows you're greedy. It shows your covetousness. You're greedy. 
The use of money indicates that the kingdom of God is not their top priority. We are reminded of the Israelites who kept the healthy cattle for themselves, and they offered God animals that were sick, injured, and deformed. I, I, I should have looked it up. But that's a specific example in the Old Testament. God was upset. The Israelites would have cattle. And they'd be all, well, God's cow died. <laughs> God's cow's sick. They would offer, which of course is explicitly forbidden in the law. Animals that had to be offered to God had to be perfect specimens. They had to be spotless without blemish because they typified Christ who was sinless. There's a famous story about the farmer, the professing Christian farmer, who had a couple of cows. And he comes in, he tells his wife, oh, it's, I got bad news, honey. God's cow died. <laughs> we must remember that everything comes from the gracious hand of God. Yahweh is the one who gives us the power to gain wealth, Deuteronomy 8.18. Therefore, we must not be covetous and greedy, especially at the expense of God's kingdom. Think upon David's words, and this is from Psalm 10, 3-4. The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and he renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Paul placed covetousness next to gross scandalous sins in, he, in Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Covetousness is the permanent and controlling principle of an irreligious heart and life, turning the soul away from God. There is no cure for this destructive love of money, but using it for other... Uh, but using it for other than selfish purposes. Riches, therefore, must ruin their professor unless he employs them for the good of things, of others, and the glory of God. Okay, so there's covetousness. Now let's turn our attention to the positive side. The biblical solution, contentment. Like Paul, who tells believers to replace unbiblical behaviors with godly counterparts, the author of Hebrews teaches us that the alternative to covetous must be contentment. Hebrews 13.5 Be content with such things as you have. And this is Paul's attitude, Philippians 4.11 I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. 1 Timothy 6.8 And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So the cure for covetousness or contentment requires faith. For faith overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 7. Those who covet often have a distrust and dissatisfaction with God's providence. And then two, an examination of life through the lens of the biblical world and life view. Life is much more than what we have on earth. This is just but for a brief time. You'll be dead uh, once you die. Life go, you know, things go on forever. As you look at Christian contentment, we need first to define it and then look at what it does not mean. The word content, archetos, essentially means sufficient. Matthew 6.34, and is translated enough, Matthew 10.25 and 1 Peter 4.3. One is content 
or is satisfied that he has enough. The verb form, archeo, means to be content or satisfied or sufficient. Christian contentment is a state of mind which submits to and is satisfied with one's situation because one understands that he has been placed in that position by God's loving, fatherly providence. Okay, so you're content. This kind of contentment can only be produced in the mind by the Holy Spirit as he works to discipline the mind in accordance with the teaching of Scripture. Such a mind will be at peace and will not complain to God or others about one's current condition. Christian contentment does not complain, is not envious of others, and is not anxious about future conditions or supplies. It does not fret and lust after another's state or things. It is a gracious mindset that has learned to trust in God no matter what the outward circumstances. Okay, you got the guy and he's not happy with his wife and he's, he wants to be a polygamist or he wants to get a divorce. Unbiblical. You got the guy, he's not satisfied with a Toyota, he's got to have a Bentley. Unbiblical. Contentment must not be confused with apathy, carelessness, laziness, or an irresponsible relinquishment of duties or an industrious course of life. It doesn't mean, well, I'm content with what I have, so I'm going to lay around the house and smoke pot. Therefore, it is not sinful to take note of what needs to be done as a Christian, family member, or citizen and make plans to accomplish our biblical goals in life. Say, well, you know, I'm uh, doing this now and I'm making 15 bucks an hour, but if I go to school just for a couple of years, I could make 25 bucks an hour and provide better for my family. There's nothing wrong with that. God is not pleased with monastic idleness or living like a lazy bum under the pretense of contentment and a rejection of the world. And when I was a charismatic street evangelist, I knew guys like that, you know. Well, God says to be content, so I'm not going to work and I'm just going to hang out and do my own thing, and that's totally unbiblical. One can be content while working hard six days a week, using one, one's intellect to plan for our family economic security, our family's economic security, and prosperity without fretting, complaining, and coveting other people's property or success. Okay, you're not happy about the uh, inner city, you're not happy about the ghetto, you're not happy about poverty, whether it's the Irish in Kensington, Pennsylvania, or it's blacks in West Philadelphia. If you're not happy with that, get a better job. Use your mind. Go to school. Work hard. You don't complain and fret and try to tear down your neighbor. A lack of contentment leads to an unstable, undependable mind that seeks sinful shortcuts to prosperity and fulfillment. Remember, covetousness is the entrance to other sins. Eve was tempted by the devil. And she accepted the false satanic presupposition that she deserved blessings and dominion instantly outside of God's plan and ethical boundaries. Eve, you can be like God. Don't listen to God. Don't 
you don't have to follow this this thing of obedience and covenant faithfulness. Do what you want. God's denying you the blessing. Contentment can have plans and concerns, but not worries, complaints, and sinful desires. Christians value hard, honest work and thinking because it require it is required by the fourth commandment. People always talk about the, the Sabbath, but they forget it also commands us to work six days a week. Not two days. Not five days. Six days a week. Doing something productive. And of course, it's required by the dominion or cultural mandate. We are to make sure that we are to attend to such things in order to honor and glorify God. And then I've labeled this section, no excuses are acceptable. Because of the corruption of our natures and because of sinful habits, the effect of past sinful habits, professing Christians at times are inclined to make excuses for discontentment. Therefore, it is wise for us to identify common excuses that people use to justify their discontentment so that we can better nip this sinful manner of thought in the bud at once. Number one, a common form of miscontentment arises when someone has been mistreated, insulted, or suffered some injustice. While the Bible has certain remedies regarding being sinned against or a criminal offense that are wise and lawful, it does not tolerate thoughts of revenge, complaints against God, or a response in kind. You see a lot of these atheist lunatics on YouTube and basically they're upset about something and they blame God for it, like it's God's fault. You know, they blame God for man's sin. Not a biblical way of thinking. A sinful unjust action or word never justifies a sinful thought, word, or action in return. When a Christian sins against us, we are to strictly follow Matthew 18, 15 and following. If the person is in a corrupt church that doesn't care about discipline, that is unjust, that is unwilling to follow scripture, one must drop the matter and leave justice in the hands of God. You're not allowed to take justice into your own hands. We're not allowed to have take vengeance ourselves. Being upset, discontent, and thinking about some kind of revenge is totally unbiblical and counterproductive. Moreover, when Christians do repent, we must be reconciled to them and really forgive them. Matthew 6.15 There must be no grudges, complaints, or gossip. The issue has been resolved biblically. Okay, you don't shake hands with somebody and say, we're reconciled now. And then turn right around and stab them in the back and start ripping them behind their back. When a criminal offense occurs, one must follow the civil procedures and not become a vigilante. Even worse, one must never blame God and harbor thoughts of resentment against his providential treatment of us. Oh God, how could you let that happen to me? You're unloving. You're a bad God. That's a terrible way to think. It's a totally unbiblical way to think. Remember the words of Peter. 1 Peter 2, 19-22 For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Number two. 
Miscontent can also occur when we are suffering under a particularly severe trial. You'll be tempted to be discontent. When the, Jew, uh, when the Jews were in the wilderness, they were tested by unpleasant circumstances. We read about that. They were in a desert, very dry. Where's the water? Where's the food? They could have trusted in God and prayed about these circumstances. But instead, they blamed God for their afflictions and they complained bitterly. They murmured against God. They complained over and over and over again. Even though God had proved his power in his deliverance of them from Egypt. Their miscontent resulted in an unholy confession where Yahweh's love, compassion, and salvation were essentially denied. Distrust led to great anxiety, and anxiety led to murmurings against God. Now, it's very common for unbelievers to blame God for tribulations. They such things as, God cannot exist, for a God of love would never allow such and such horrible thing to happen to me. How could God let that happen? What an evil, these atheist morons on YouTube do this all the time. Well, how could God allow this to happen? Well, there's a thing in the universe that's called sin, and God didn't do the sin. Man did the sin. It was a valid secondary agent. They become miscontent and angry like Job's wife, who said to her severely diseased husband, Cursed God and die. Job 2, 9. The true test of a person's faith toward God often comes in times of suffering. When godly Job was told that all his possessions were either stolen or destroyed, that all his servants except one was killed, and that his home was destroyed and his own children were crushed to death under his house, God's word says that, here's uh, Job 1.20, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. Note the patriarch's confession of his dedication and faith to God in this severe trial. Job said, this is 121, Naked I came into, from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then note the Holy Spirit's commentary on Job's behavior, verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Of course, Israel, who accused God of bringing them to the promised land to die by the sword, Numbers 14.3. Faith has Peter's attitude, 1 Peter 4.12-13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as some strange thing has happened to you, <coughs> but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. So Christian contentment looks at trials with faith and patiently waits for the future reward. And of course, we always have, if we've got a problem in life, the answer to that problem is prayer. When Paul was suffering affliction that would not depart from him, Jesus said to him, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Genuine faith does not doubt God's love, and mercy, but rests upon these wonderful attributes. Not to receive immediate deliverance upon repeated petitions does not mean 
that Yahweh does not care or that we do not receive help at all. We must remember that our Father only gives us good things, things that are best for our edification and blessing in due time. So you go through a really bad trial and you got to keep in mind, it's for my best. It may hurt now, but it will be for my better for me down the road. Therefore, there is no reason to embrace a discontent or an anxious spirit, for ultimately the Lord's answer to our prayers is never negative. It only seems so at times in a temporary myopic sense. In the long run, however, God's dealings are fully positive and work to our spiritual growth, wisdom, sanctification, and blessing. And then we come to the reason for contentment now. 13, 5b to 6. The author of Hebrews grounds the reason why Christians should be content directly on the promises related to God's loving care of his people. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So our contentment as well as our strength, courage, and perseverance is to be found in God's ability and trustworthiness. One of Moses' last messages to the people of Israel before he died was a promise of God's loving presence. This is Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. <coughs> he will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. At the crucial time, when Joshua began his leadership, he takes over for Moses. He's the new Moses leading the people. And he's a type of Christ, obviously. <clears throat> God said, this is God speaking, Joshua 1.5, I will not leave you nor forsake you. When our Lord gave the great commission to the apostles, and it applies to all ordained preachers after that, all, all, all those who serve Christ, he said, Matthew 28.20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The continuation of God's presence is coupled with the promise of God's assistance. The two are inseparable. The promises may... Oh, and there's others here. Let me just... Uh, these words were spoken to, by David to Solomon to comfort him and encourage him in the great work of building the temple. Listen to this. This is 1 Chronicles 28, 20. And David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage, and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. In Isaiah 41.10, God addresses Israel with similar words. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not discouraged. Be not dismayed, for I am with your, I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So Israel is not to fear at all. There is no enemy, no sudden change upon the scene of history. Nothing that should cause her to fear, for her God is with her. We see this over and over again in Scripture. And the words are almost identical. This pattern is common in Scripture. To Abraham, who was about to endure many trials, God said, Do not be afraid. This is uh, Genesis 15.1. Ab Abram, I am your shield. Your exceedingly great reward. Yahweh uh, reassured Isaac, saying, 
I am the God, and this is Genesis 26, 24. I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear. I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So the people of God are continually called upon to trust in God and his glorious attributes of love, grace, and mercy. In Acts 18, 9-10, we read this. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So this pattern over and over again in Scripture. God's with you. Don't fret. Don't worry. You don't need to be envious. You don't need to lust after things that are not yours. Just trust in God. The continuation of God's presence is coupled with a promise of God's assistance. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Joshua, David, and the apostles apply to the whole church of Christ. Every Christian must endure dangers, difficulties, and trials. Therefore, every Christian must focus his faith on God's character and promises of love and assistance. What do you think the Bible contains so many promises of love and assistance by God? He's faithful. The song that Jesus and the disciples sung at the first Holy Supper, the Lord's Supper, is also our song. This is what they sang. This is uh, Psalm 118, 5 to 6. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is our song. This is our confession. This is not the confession of cowards or those who draw back in fear. Since Jesus has told us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we can boldly say, during our trials and tribulations, the Lord is my helper. With Paul, we can meditate on our Lord's precious salvation. This is Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's Psalm 42, 44, 22. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <coughs> Built on the same principles of why we shouldn't covet, why we should be content. The love of God which is unchangeable is extended toward us through our connection with Jesus and his perfect salvation. It is due to Christ's redemption that we possess the Holy Spirit and our Lord continuously intercedes on our behalf. Yeah, he's up there right now at the right hand of God. He intercedes for you by name, 24 hours a day. If we focus our faith on our Lord and Savior, our worries and afflictions are conquered through our confidence in Jesus' love and power. We are more than conquerors in him. With Paul, we can say, this is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here's what John Calvin says. It's wonderful. <clears throat> he who is persuaded of God's kindness toward him is able to stand firm in the heaviest afflictions. These usually harass men in no small degree and for various reasons, because they interpret them as tokens of God's wrath, or think themselves to be forsaken by God, or see no end to them. 
or neglect to meditate on a better life, or for other similar reasons. But when the mind is purged from such mistakes, it becomes calm and quietly rests. But the import of the word is that whatever happens, we have to stand firm in this faith <clears throat> that God, who once in his love embraced us, never ceases to care for us. For he does not simply say that there is nothing which can tear God away from his love to us, but he means that the knowledge and lively sense of the love which he testifies to us is so vigorous in our hearts that it always shines in the darkness of afflictions. For as clouds, though they obscure the pure brightness of the sun, do not yet wholly deprive us of its light. So God in adversity sends forth through the darkness of the rays of, of his favor, lest temptation should overwhelm us with despair. Nay, our faith, supported by God's promises, as by wings, makes its way upward to heaven through all the intervening obstacles. It is indeed true that adversities are tokens of God's wrath when viewed in themselves, but when pardon and reconciliation proceed, as we ought to be assured that God, through he chastises us, yet never forgets his mercy, he indeed thus reminds us of what we have deserved. But he no less testifies that our salvation is an object of his care while he leads us to repentance. So here, briefly, summary and conclusion. Let's wrap it up here. It's a lot of material. One could write a book on this topic. <coughs> Christian contentment quiets the spirit so that no matter what our lot is, what may happen to us, we are happy, submissive to God, and thankful. Contentment bears all things and does not murmur, complain, or worry. There is a big difference between a legitimate Christian concern that plans for future contingencies and a disordered antinomian vexation. The person who's never happy, the person who complains all the time, that's never content, has to tear other people down. A content spirit is controlled, ordered, satisfied. It remains silent and leans, learns under God's rod instead of making excuses and blaming the Lord for our troubles. A heart that is content does not deliberately enter into temptation. It's not unstable and remains focused on Christian duties. It does not allow itself to be distracted from Christ's kingdom by the cares and luxuries of this world. It desires to be controlled by the word of God, not the lusts of the flesh or the pride of this fading life. It is the biblical antidote to envy, discouragements, and calamities. It always depends on Christ and not human wisdom and autonomy. <clears throat> it causes our hearts to float over afflictions instead of sinking under them. It always depends on God for help, not the pragmatism and compromise of this world. Contentment casts out depression and replaces it with joy in the Lord. It fights against rebellion toward God's law, picks up the cross, and walks the narrow road of Christian discipleship. A quiet spirit goes to God in prayer when problems arise and then trusts in his infinite goodness, love, and wisdom. It cries out to God, our Heavenly Father, instead of murmuring, complaining, and vexing as a rebellious covenant-breaking son. David says, Psalm 55, 22, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And of course, the, the, the great passage of Paul that we should all memorize, if you haven't memorized it already, Philippians 4, 6-7, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing. 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so we must trust in God habitually and implicitly in every trying situation. We lay our burdens before the Lord in prayer and then rest upon his love and power. In every situation, if we trust in Christ steadfastly and cheerfully take his yoke on our shoulders, we shall have peace. It's not easy. It's not always easy. It takes faith. But God's promises are true. They're always true. They never fail us. We will live in contentment and find rest for our souls. When we meditate and pray, there are two aspects of the Lord's help that we should seek and pray for. First, we seek an internal supply of spiritual strength and grace, which is founded upon our union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Romans 6, 3-13, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, etc. Our sanctification, biblical attitude of contentment and perseverance is a result of the Holy Spirit in us, cleansing our hearts and changing us according to the sacred scriptures. If our faith is not firmly focused on Christ and his perfect redemption, we will not be able to stand against the storms of life. So Christ has to be in all your thoughts. He has to be the focus of your mind, your heart, your faith. Second, we must trust in God's loving providential direction of our lives, knowing that he cares for us and he directs our paths in a manner that in the long run will help us. I've gone through some horrible things. And I look back on it, I go, well, that, that worked for my good, that worked for my good, that worked for my good, etc., etc. Et in our trial, sufferings, and persecutions, we all have a supporting interest in God's many promises of aid. And here's Paul's encouragement. Philippians 1, 27-28, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, having one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. He's writing to a persecuted church. Note the contemplation of the sons of Korah, and with this will end. Psalm 42.5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Yeah, people, Christians get depressed. Christians get anxious. Christians have problems. They fret. They worry. But we have a solution to all of that. Christian contentment. So let us obey. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word is amazing. It's just every answer. It has all the answers. The world doesn't have the answers. The world is foolish. But you have all the answers and you give them to us. A gift of your sacred, holy, infallible word. We thank you for that. Strengthen us in Christ. Cause us to be content. Cause us not to covet. Help us, Lord, to put that off which is pleasing in your sight displeased that you that you hate in your eyes and replace it with a godly biblical counterpart and be content in it in Jesus name amen